Welcome to the Counselors of Real Estate's Thought Leaders podcast series. In these episodes, you'll hear candid and compelling perspectives from subject matter experts who not only represent diverse and novel thinking, but question prevailing thinking. I'm Anthony Delapel, CRE, partner with the law firm of McCurdy, Risk and Olson and Delapel in Morris Plains, New Jersey. I currently serve as the second vice chair-elect of the Councils of Real Estate. Counselors is a distinguished international group of accomplished leaders within the real estate landscape, solving the world's most complex real estate challenges. Experienced, innovative, and credentialed problem solvers, counselors practice in 20 countries and offer expertise in more than 50 real estate disciplines across all asset types and classes. Each has earned the prestigious CRE designation. I'm honored and pleased that our guest for this episode is Clint Schumacher, CRE, a partner with the law firm of Dawson and Sod in Dallas, Texas. Clint focuses his litigation practice on eminent domain and condemnation law. He represents property owners impacted by public projects and has developed a particular expertise in condemnation for highway projects and right-of-way projects. His clients include Fortune 500 companies, Wall Street investment firms, national restaurant brands, international hotel chains, individual investors, developers, and families. Before joining Dawson and Saad, Clint represented regional toll authorities and mass transit authorities in some of the largest projects in North Texas. Today, we get to turn the tables on Clint because in addition to his law practice, he's also the host of the popular Eminent Domain podcast, but he is our guest today. Welcome, Clint. Oh, man. Tell me what a great introduction. Thank you. I, I appreciate uh, appreciate being asked, and it's a great honor for me to get to visit with you. Well, we're thrilled to have you today. I guess I just wanted to start by having you give us a, a, a quick overview of the Eminent Domain podcast. Uh, how long has it been around, and uh, what has it taught you about real estate or property rights that you didn't know? Sure. So I, I decided to launch this podcast um, in early 2017. And our first episode was in May 2017 with, you know, a, a great gentleman, a, a, someone who's become a good friend and one of the leading voices in the eminent domain field. Robert Thomas was our first guest for our first episode. And, um, you know, Tony, you've, you've blessed me with being a guest on uh, now a couple of episodes of the podcast and, and are one of our crowd favorites. Um, you know, I, I have... I I did it because I one enjoyed listening to podcasts, uh, but two wanted to give back to the community and have something that that maybe distinguished me from other practitioners in the area. But one of the things that I um, didn't expect was, and this is really serendipitous, is just it has really given me an opportunity to meet a number of other colleagues across the country. And so I knew a lot of people in Texas that did eminent domain work, but I didn't have a lot of exposure outside the state. And so getting to meet people like you, getting to meet people like Robert Thomas, getting to meet people uh, who have been guests on the show ha has really been um, a real unexpected benefit and, and, and a true blessing. In terms of what it's taught me, just from a substantive standpoint, you know, one of the things that we don't deal with very much in Texas, and I haven't really dealt with very much at all in my practice, is what we call regulatory takings. So when the government takes some land use action that, that severely impacts how a property owner can use their property, 
We just don't have a lot of that in Texas. You see it more in California. You see it to some extent in your jurisdiction in New Jersey and other places, but it's not something that we deal with. But in talking to people because of the podcast and because that is an issue, regulatory takings that often finds its way into U.S. Supreme Court uh, cases and is a very complicated area of the law, I've had to learn more about it. Uh, and so that's that's one thing I've learned just by doing the podcast. Well, I will tell you that I've, uh, I've really enjoyed the times that I've been a guest on your podcast and uh, I've listened to them all. I'm actually working my way through uh, the episodes for the second time because I find that the um, the segments are a perfect amount of time for most of the uh, local drives that I have to do uh, around here. And uh, Good. I've learned a lot from it. And uh, I'm, I'm really happy that you uh, have taken the time um, and invested the time to, to host a podcast and to provide really interesting content. So I appreciate that and uh, appreciate even more you being with us today, because what we wanted to do is to uh, maybe take a, a little bit of advantage of the fact that uh, as an eminent domain lawyer, one of the things that, uh, you know, I know that you do, but, but many people may not know, um, is that you probably get a chance to work with expert witnesses in, in not just in the appraisal field, but in other fields, uh, as much or more than any other lawyers do. I can't remember the last time uh, that I worked on a case that didn't have expert witnesses. So what, what we thought we would do is just spend a few minutes uh, visiting with you and talking with you about some of the strategies that you might employ uh, in uh, in working with experts so that uh, we could take uh, have some takeaways after today's interview for our audience, which is obviously going to uh, include a lot of people who provide not only consulting services, uh, but may be engaged to provide expert witness consulting services in litigation matters. So that'd be all right with you. I think that's a great idea. And as you say, you know, a lot of our cases are very much expert driven. Uh, of course, it's it's hard to have a, a eminent domain case without a real estate appraiser. So those are in almost every case, but we also get to work with, with brokers, with land use specialists, with engineers. And uh, of course, as you say, it's, it's, we work with experts as much or more than any other litigation field. And so I think this is an excellent, an excellent topic that we can visit about and hopefully be helpful on. Great. So why don't we start? I'm going to throw you a, a softball right down the middle. Sure. Start by uh, sharing with us, if you could, what you would identify as being the key factors that any consultant should be focused on when he or she is going to take on an assignment, which would uh, include uh, likely expert witness consulting as well. Yeah, you bet. So I, I think that that one of the first things that a, a professional coming into this will want to know is what is my scope? What is it exactly that I'm being asked to do? And I think if there's clarity between the lawyer or the client that's making the assignment and the professional, it, it can solve a lot of problems later. And so I, I would start off right off the bat with knowing and making sure you know what's, what's in your scope and what's not in your scope. And, and then of course, it's always good advice to not accept anything that you don't feel competent in. Uh, even if you think that you might be able to get competent quickly, generally that doesn't end up very well. Uh, and when you get put into the heat of a cross-examination, having the experience to be able to be an advocate for your opinion and a good advocate for your opinion is gonna be very helpful. So, so don't take on anything where you don't have true expertise. That's not gonna help you forgive me, Tony, that's not going to help you and it's not going to ultimately help your client. So um, I think from the beginning, you want to get those two things nailed down. 
Have you found in your own practice that the way in which an expert is engaged or may serve can in part um, or even in large part depend upon uh, the nature of the assignment with respect to the, the target audience? And let, let me maybe explain my, my question um, a little bit. Um, most of the time, expert witnesses are, are going to provide testimony in court proceedings like trials. Um, but there are other opportunities for uh, people to provide expert witness consulting, um, might be an arbitration hearing, or even in some cases in, in mediation hearings, um, there might be trials with judges or jury trials. Does the scope of the audience uh, and the delivery of the expert's testimony um, in any way get shaped by where that expert is presenting his or her testimony? Well, absolutely. Yeah. And so you'll want to know who, who are you presenting to? When I think about, as I'm working with an expert, I always think that they're basically communicating on a couple of different stages. Uh, and here's what I mean by that. I mean, at some level, um, you have to convince the judge, even if the judge is not the ultimate decision maker, generally the judge has what, you know, we of course call gate gatekeeping authority. The judge decides who gets to come in his or her courtroom and talk to the jury if you have a jury trial. And so in every case, even if, even if the judge is not making the ultimate decision, he or she needs to be comfortable that you've done a couple of things. One, you know what you're talking about. Two, you've done your diligence. You've done your homework. You have data to support your opinion. Uh, and third, that your, your opinion makes sense. It's not out of the norm. It doesn't use a uh, unique theory that hasn't been tested or widely accepted. And so, you know, the first stage that you've got to get past is, is convincing the judge that your opinion is worth presenting to the jury. Then, of course, you're talking to the jury. And, and we, can, we may talk some more about this as we go, but, but ultimately, they're the people that are making the decision in the case. And, you know, I, I, um, some people think that, that jurors you know, they say juries are not going to understand this testimony. They're not going to um, know what it is I'm talking about. They're not going to understand the technical terms. And to an extent, that's true. But when I look at a jury, I, you know, I, generally jurors are fairly smart. What they're not is, is experienced in whatever it is the expert does. I mean, they don't do real estate every day. They don't do land development every day. They don't do land planning every day. But most people, and particularly most jurors, are inquisitive. They like learning about new things. And, and I think if we approach a jury as someone that we can teach, if we do it in a great way, then I think it becomes very effective. And, and I think some of the best experts are professors. I mean, they're used to teaching a class. They have the skill set to convey ideas. And, and if you think of yourself in talking to the jury in that way, how can I teach them what it is I do in an enthusiastic way. So if you're excited about your subject matter and using analogies, using stories, using things that they can connect with, they can bring their everyday life experience to connect to whatever the subject matter is. I think you can be very effective in communicating to the jury. The, then the next stage is at some level, you're communicating to the opposing lawyer and your opposing expert. If you have an opposing expert that's testifying on the same field, and while you're not going to convince them, and your job is generally not to convince them, you do need to convey that you have done all those things we talked about. You know what you're talking about. You have done your diligence. 
you have a theory that that is accepted and that makes sense. It's not novel. It's not unusual. It's not going to get you to the wrong answer. And, and if you can convince them that you are a, a expert who has done their work and is going to be convincing, then ultimately that advances your client's case because now they know that they have a very worthy adversary. They're not going to be able to take advantage of, of your client's um, position. And so that's yet another stage that I think you're communicating on. You find that the most experienced um, experts are always the best experts. In other words, someone who's been around the block and doing it for 20, 30, 40 years or more and handled thousands and thousands of cases that has those credentials. Um, is that who you're always looking for? Um, I think that's a piece, but that may not necessarily be the best expert. I mean, if you can have that, but then I think it's actually, it, it is as important to have somebody who's a good teacher who, who can convey those ideas. And so if you can marry those two together, now you've got a really good expert, but if you've got somebody that's done it for a long time, but they can't explain it, or they don't come across in a likable way when they do explain it then, you know, all that experience and all that benefit doesn't really matter if you can't ultimately convince the people that you're trying to convince about whatever it is your opinion is. How about the issue of um, privilege and discovery? I know from state to state, or, or even some of our listeners, maybe in other countries, there are obviously going to be different laws in each place, but that the concept of how you might protect the communications between either the lawyer and the expert witness or potentially the expert witness and his or her client. Is that something that you um, have come across a, a useful way to handle and, and make sure that your experts understand what the ground rules are? Man, that's a good question. And when I've dealt with a, a expert who has not done a lot of witness work, that's always a very important discussion at the beginning. And I'll just tell you what I tell them is is I tell them, look, I, I, I want you to do your work. Uh, I absolutely want you to do your diligence. I want you to go through your process. I want you to keep your file in the way you're supposed to keep your file. And, and appraisers generally have some requirements about what needs to be in their file, and they absolutely need to follow that. But at the same time, you need to keep in mind that whatever you put in writing, whether it's in your file, whether it's in an email to me, whether it's in a text message to me, you need to just assume that the other side, the other lawyer is going to get to see it. And not only are they going to get to see it, but they're going to have a chance to ask you about it under oath. And if you approach it with that mindset, you can, you can avoid a lot of problems. And so, you know, the, the rules of, of privilege and confidentiality, as you say, vary a little bit from jurisdiction, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. But for any witness that is testifying, by and large, most of what they create and share with the lawyer is going to be shared with the other side and could ultimately be shared with the judge or jury if, if it's pertinent information. And so you don't want to have wild speculations in your file. You don't want to write down ideas that haven't been vetted with the lawyer. You don't want to um, certainly write down anything negative about the other lawyer or the other party none of those things are going to work out well. There are situations where you can be a purely consulting expert, you're not going to testify and your information could be privileged and not see the light of day. But, but if you ever uh, are gonna be put on the stand or you think you might be put on the stand, uh, then you should treat your file, you should treat your communications with the lawyer accordingly. And, and going back to one of your earlier questions, that's a conversation you ought to have with the lawyer that's hiring you very early 
in the engagement. How about the, the concept of the ownership of the expert's opinion, which can be a very delicate subject because um, my understanding of how you handle your own practice is similar to mine in that um, we want to make sure that we can do the uh, best job we can for our client. And um, that usually requires the development of a case theory or theme in a litigation matter very, very early on. And even the selection of the expert um, has to uh, honor that theme in theory, and you have to make sure that you have the right people on your team. So when you come across an expert who may um, uh, be very experienced in the field, and it might be a specialty type of a property that you know this person is um, um, you know, one of the top people in the state or the country, if you will, uh, does that mean that you're automatically going to use them? And, and do you have concerns if, um, if they walk into the room and already have an opinion formed before they have all the facts that they need and understand what the theory of the case is. Well, yeah, that's that's a that's a uh, that's a hard one. So, as you say, every you know, as I'm thinking about it, and and I think we do think about it the same way. I mean, every case is ultimately a story, and we're forming that story hopefully early in the case. And and if the case ends up going to trial, we're trying to tell that story just like a movie director would to a to a jury and the expert witness is a they're an actor in the play they're an actor in the movie they're a character in the story and they you know have to fit inside that story for that story to make sense and so ho hopefully you know you are working cooperatively with the lawyer so that your opinion fits inside that story now do not hear me say at all that you should adopt an opinion that you don't believe or that you don't think is accurate or that you think is overly aggressive. Um, inevitably, and I've unfortunately seen it, hopefully not with my experts, but with the other parties' experts, where they adopt an opinion that they don't really fully in their heart of hearts believe. And ultimately, when that happens, when you're put under the heat of cross-examination, you're, you're going to buckle. I mean, if you are not in integrity with, with what's in your mind and what's in your heart, that's going to show. And the one thing, you know, juries may not be experienced in your particular subject matter, but jurors by and large are very good at knowing when someone is uncomfortable, uh, when someone doesn't really believe what it is that they're saying. They're very good at distinguishing that because we do that in our everyday life. And so uh, while your opinion certainly should, should fit within your attorney and client's theme and story of the case. By the same token, don't let anybody push you to adopt an opinion that you don't really believe because that's ultimately not going to work out well. All right, in, in a moment, I wanna take us into a courtroom and ask you some questions about um, how what experts might improve their performance based upon your own experiences. But before we do that, I'm sure you've had a situation at least once or twice where um, either your expert or the adverse uh, party's expert um, has something that we loosely refer to uh, here in New Jersey as baggage, meaning um, <laughs> they have a, another report or prior reports or testimony that they've given in other matters that are inconsistent with the opinion that they are going to offer in your matter, um, and you know about it as the lawyer. How do you counsel the expert uh, to handle that situation? And, and what are the things that can be done to minimize the damage of that baggage blowing up and causing a big problem for the uh, client in the case? 
Well, that's the, you know, the old prior inconsistent statement or prior inconsistent report. Every cross-examining examining lawyer's dream and every witness's nightmare. So, um, you know, I, I going back to, to something we just talked about in a minute, I mean, juries are really good at reading people. They may not, and I tell witnesses, look, they may not understand everything that you say, but they will remember the way you conveyed it and whether or not you believed it. And, um, and with a situation where you have a, a prior inconsistent statement, you've got some baggage, you know, one, hopefully you've done the preparatory work with the lawyer to, and if the lawyer hasn't brought it to your, your attention, hopefully you will bring it to theirs to know, hey, there's this other situation out there. And hopefully there is an explanation about why your situation here is different from the other situation. And you can provide some background to explain why the light might have been red over there, but it's green over here. Um, and if you just think through it and you have it in a, in a tight package and you deliver it in a believable way, I think that's perfectly, you know, you, you can deal with that. You can deal with that very well. And so what I tell witnesses is, look, number one, let's be prepared. But if something comes up that we're not expecting, then you know, here again, the jury is going to see how you react. And if you react with confidence and can provide an explanation, um, it's going to be very different than if you get nervous, you get rattled, and you can't deal with that prior inconsistent statement. So I tell them, look, slow down, take a deep breath. Let's remember, let's remember the, what we're trying to convey. Number one, we want you to be truthful, and I want you to be truthful. Um, and I want you to tell that panel the truth about whatever it is that happened before and whatever it is that's happening here. Two, I want you to be likable. So even if you're being attacked, I don't want you to respond in kind. I want you to be the one that keeps your cool. I want you to be the one that keeps your poise. Um, and I want you to be thorough and say, look, I, I've, uh, I looked at that issue over there very thoroughly. I've looked at this issue over here very thoroughly. Even, either market conditions have changed or it's a different type of property or whatever it is that's led you to a different opinion. Uh, if you express, you know, I've really thought through that very hard. I've done some research on that. Here's why I think this is the answer over here. Then I think that's the best way to handle a situation like that. Do you have any advice uh, that you might be able to offer to consultants who are serving as expert witnesses on how to handle when they're in court and they realize that they, they made a mistake mm. comes out, let's say mm. on cross-examination could be a number, could be a statement about the size of a piece of property or how they handled uh, the treatment of it in uh, making adjustments in an appraisal, anything like that. How do you handle mistake knowing that there are, at least in my state, we have eight, eight sets of eyes in the jury box watching you. <laughs> And, and at least one lawyer on the other side who wants to pounce on that. Uh, any advice on how to crawl out of that hole and, and minimize the, the damage? Yeah, you bet. I, I've always thought the best experts or the experts that come across the best are the ones that are truly intellectually curious. And it, if, and it goes, this goes back to being thorough and doing your diligence. And I think that, that if you get into a situation where you have have made an error. I think you need to accept that and say, okay, well, you know, gosh, I didn't realize that that there were seven thousand square feet in the building. I, I had seen data that was sixty five hundred. If indeed it's seven thousand, I'd like a chance to be able to confirm that. That may that may adjust my opinion. 
And, you know, at the end of the day, you are an advocate for your opinion. You're not necessarily an advocate for your clients. You're not an advocate for the lawyer that has retained you. You are an advocate for whatever your opinion is. And if there's, and, and if you are not that, you, you've lost your independence, you've lost your credibility with the jury. And so if there's information that comes up that's going to alter your opinion, I think you need to be in a position to accept that and consider uh, how it is that it changes your opinion. And, and it may be that you need to go back and think about that and figure out, uh, you know, is this really going to alter the price per square foot that I think this property is going to be? And um, uh, but but I, I would always have this underlying attitude of intellectual curiosity and you want to know you want to know as much about the problem as you can, because ultimately, at the end of the day, you want to get to the right answer and you want to share that right answer with the jury. So we're going to round the corner now, uh, but I do have one other question uh, before we uh, we wrap it up. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that you've worked with experts um, who are renowned uh, at whatever their specialty area is, and um, on occasion may have an expert that uh, wrote the book literally on the topic. Um, and, and you mentioned earlier that professors tend to make good experts because they explain things to the audience. How do you take a, an expert witness who's been immersed in a very specialized field for a long time, who may be extremely knowledgeable and highly intellectual, highly educated in their field, and, and get them to be effective in front of a jury of lay people when the subject matter is admittedly dry? Some people think it's boring. The jury might be comprised of people who either didn't want to be there at all and felt forced into it or lost interest uh, right after the opening statements and your witness is coming on in day six or seven of the trial. What advice or tips do you give to your expert witnesses to try to help them communicate their opinions in a way that they can be well received so they can help you win your case? Uh, all right, so I'll start with a statement that's a little more blunt than what I might actually use if I'm talking to an expert. But since I'm talking, you know, to an audience of experts who may get hired, I, I can be blunt with you. So um, first thing is, is have some humility. And so a lot of times, uh, Tony, I suspect you've seen this too, the person who wrote the book, un unfortunately, um, can come in with some hubris that that just really is distasteful, doesn't come across very well to a jury of, of people who, you know, hadn't really heard of, heard of you until you got into the courtroom. And so uh, approach the situation with some, with some humility. Once you get past that, what, what I like to tell a witness is, you know, number one, remember, remember what that juror has gone through up to that point. So the juror got a piece of paper in their mailbox or an email uh, from the county to come down and sit in a courtroom and figure out if they were going to be on a panel. It wasn't on their calendar. They didn't plan on it. And really they're not getting paid much, if anything at all to do it. And it's extraordinarily disruptive to their life, but they go down and they do it. And once they get the invitation, it's bad enough that they have to disrupt their life to go do it, but then they're hoping they get something interesting. You know, maybe it's a murder case. Maybe it's, it's a case that involves sex, drugs, or rock and roll. No, it's a case about valuation of real estate. You know, what a complete letdown that is. And so, you know, have some empathy that that, that juror is sitting on a panel that they didn't ask to be on and that they probably didn't want to be on. 
But what happens with the vast majority of juries is somewhere around the end of day one, going into day two, they get past those feelings of why in the world did this happen to me? And the intellectual curiosity takes over and the patriotic view of, okay, this is an important system. I'm going to do the very best job I can for these parties who have shown up in the courtroom. That kicks in for most jurors the overwhelming number of jurors that kicks in for. And so they are there ultimately trying to get to the right answer. And so if you begin to think about the jury that way, and you begin to think about the fact that they really want you to be successful up on the stand, they, they want you to do well. They want you to explain what it is that you know to them in a way that they can understand it and apply it in whatever way the judge is telling them they're supposed to apply it in this case so that they can get to a right answer for these two parties who are in front of them. And I think if you begin to see the jury in that way and you talk to them in that way and you think about, and I tell, I tell witnesses, look, what I want the jury to think about you when you get done is that you were truthful. You were likable. There's somebody they'd love to have a beer or a cup of coffee with. You have true expertise in whatever your subject is and you approach this problem very thoroughly. And if they walk away knowing those four things about you, then your opinion will really be elevated in their mind and you'll have done your client a, a good service. I think that's excellent advice and uh, all up together. Um, so I have one more question for you. It's not about expert witnesses. It's about sure. Clint. Okay. Um, because I've, I've gotten to know you over the past you know, several years, but one of the things I didn't know is that in addition to having a full-time law practice and property rights and uh, being a host of a an eminent debate podcast for several years. You've actually you've written a book. Um, yeah. and, and this we're not even touching your family life, which I know you're very devoted to. This is just uh, on the professional side of, of the time clock. Tell us about the book. What is it about and why did you write it? Yeah. Well, th- Tony, thank you for asking about that. You know, in addition to practicing law, I'm also very lucky I get to coach football in a football craze state in the state of Texas. And so I coach high school football at one of the local uh, schools, which is a great blessing. And so this book, um, which is about resiliency, the, the title is Second Wind, Decisions the Resilient Make to Overcome Adversity. The, the book really came about as a result of work that I do with these athletes. And, um, you know, one of the things that's vitally important in teaching an athlete how to is, is teaching an athlete how to deal with adversity, how to overcome it and how to move on to the next game, the next practice, even the next play. And so I started to to be able to coach them well. I started studying what is it that the super resilient do to overcome adversity? What's in their tool belt? And then I started deconstructing, you know, situations in my own life in my family life where we've had adversity and how did I move past that obstacle? And so I had all this information I was gathering about how do you teach and build resilience in, in, you know, kids that I'm coaching and going through that, it opened my eyes to, to even the professionals that were around me, you know, clients I had that were dealing with large obstacles. And as you know, Tony, a lot of times when they come in our door, it may be the biggest obstacle they've ever dealt with, or it may be a threat to their retirement or to a substantial amount of their net worth. Um, could I be helpful in that? I noticed colleagues that I, was wor- that I was working with who were dealing with professional stresses for the first time, dealing with issues at home, dealing with help, uh, health issues. They were grappling with, how do I deal with this adversity? And so, you know, as you know, dealing with adversity is, is an important part of life. And I, I noticed that those that 
could transform their mindset from thinking about an adversity and instead thinking about it as an opportunity to grow and to get better and to get stronger. Those that could do that and had a tool belt to do that came out so much better on the other side. And so um, I had done all this work and I decided, you know what, I'm going to put this into a book. And so um, it, it sure enough has, has uh, come together. Uh, it's going to be uh, available on Amazon uh, later on here this month in the next few weeks. And so if you, if you want to become resilient, if you want to learn how to overcome adversity in your life, but even more so if you want to be a parent or a manager or a teacher or a coach who builds resilience in others, I, I encourage you to give it a, rate, a read. It'd be a great honor to me. The name once again is? It's Second Wind, Decisions the Resilient Make to Overcome Adversity. Wow. Well, I tell you what, I'm looking forward to reading it and I'm sure I'll enjoy it. And it sounds like it'll really hit home. So Clint, I want to thank you uh, for being our guest today. Uh, there's obviously a lot of significant economic aspects to the opportunity cost of not working up cases um, in a significant way uh, when, when a lawyer is working with a consultant who takes on an expert witness assignment. Having access to the subject matter expertise that the councils of real estate can offer in multiple disciplines can often be a deciding factor in any given case. So join us next time for another episode of the CRE Thought Leaders podcast. I'm Anthony Delapel. On behalf of the Councils of Real Estate, thank you all for joining us.